He showed up again. (laughs) So, I'd like to talk tonight about Sila. Sila is translated different ways. Morality, ethical conduct, integrity, virtue. And it seems like in my practice with Sila, that the basis for understanding um, what it means is to tap into our interconnectedness, our ability to connect. Hmm. So I want to do something different and start by singing. (laughs) Well, not me alone. over and over today, like, I can't believe I'm going to do this. If my wife were here, she would be like, oh, honey, you can't carry a tune. <laughs> but I'm going <laughs> to. I don't know if um, you know Gianti Kyle. She's a Minneapolis local singer-songwriter, gospel. Um, she wrote um, Hand to Hand, a song that was, co-wrote a song um, after Michael Brown was killed that uh, became adopted by Black Lives Matter as an anthem of sorts. Uh, does anybody know it? No. Nobody knows it. I, I'm going to sing alone. You know it. No, we need to know it. You need to know it. <laughs> Lewis knows it, yeah. Lewis, you know it? I hear it again. Right. <laughs> it's like a chanted at protests. And I really feel the connection in the song. In fact, uh, when Lewis stood up the other morning and said, gave us his teaching, offered us some support, I, in the short walk between here and the retreat house where I had interviews, the song was just playing in my mind and it really helped me connect. It actually brought some tears to my eyes, just like connecting with the truth of what it means to be human, the truth of my own experience in my heart and my connection with others. This path is one of connection. It's not separate. So this the song is, the day's going to come when I won't march no more. The day's going to come when I won't march no more. But while my sister ain't equal and my brother can't breathe, hand in hand with my family, I will fill these streets. We will fill these streets. I do know this, too. Yes. There might be others of you out there that don't want to chant it with me. Right? <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to say it again. Yeah. The day's going to come when I won't march no more. The day's going to come when I won't march no more. But while my sister ain't equal and my brother can't breathe, hand in hand with my family, we will fill these streets. Let's do it one more time. The day's gonna come when I won't march no more. The day's gonna come when I won't march no more. While my sister ain't equal and my brother can't breathe. Hand in hand with my family, we will fill these streets. 
Let's take a moment and feel that. I hear so much in that. I feel so much just saying it. I'm chanting it a little bit, but in the midst of a protest, the way that energy can shift from anger and frustration, uncertainty, to one of connection and togetherness is so beautiful. This, the day's going to come when I won't march no more. feels like there is a point to this practice that we're doing. This practice here on retreat, this practice of purifying the mind, being brave and looking at the terrain of the heart. And then the last line of hand in hand with my family, we will fill these streets. It's assertive. There's some resolve, right? And this family is a broad term. It's not just my my biological family, but anyone I'm with. Like random people in a big public space, hand in hand. So moving to me. I really appreciate Jayanti. She was a um, one of some artists who inspired the Million Artists Movement uh, that came right behind Black Lives Matter. And artists, you know, feel like they had something to offer. I, I feel like they do have something to offer. I'm not an artist, so I say they. Uh, but I've been in many situations where their ritual and um, art has inspired this kind of feeling of connection when it could have been otherwise. And this chant or song reminds me of that. This is a path of connection. It's an inclusive path. We're practicing the art of inclusion, including all of our experiences, the most difficult, um, the sweet ones, those that are easily noticeable and those that are obscured by the defilement, learning how to hold the mind, the defiled mind with a lot of care. It's like, I tend to, I say this to myself, like, sweetie, it's a full-bodied experience. (laughs) (laughs) The path of, it's a path of connection, connecting here, also connecting with you and others. Like, remembering that our values aren't all that different and we want similar things. No matter who we are as human beings, we want to be safe and protected and we want good health we want to learn how to be happy and we're seekers on this path seekers looking for some freedom Lewis reminded me of this not just the song but when he offered his teaching he pointed to two important things that were at least clear in my mind, this ancestor energy and the connection to each other and the earth through this understanding of water has been offered through indigenous ways. But this, like, um, receiving what he was saying about ancestor energy just reminded me of the, um, my connection to all of those who have come before me just had like a wave of kind of understanding of my teachers and their teachers and 
ancestors that have taught something and my responsibility to purify my heart and my actions so that I have something to offer that's of use. Remembering both. And then this like understanding of water and um, the earth, caring for the earth and our bodies that are part of the earth or like the earth and help us feel like we are more similar. I read this poem like every talk I give, which has not been many, but I love it. This poem by Naomi Shihab Nye, Kindness. This really points to what it means to be connected for me. In fact, I usually just carry a copy around in my bag and read it from time to time. See some nods back there. Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved. All this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Yeah, the simplicity of baking bread and mailing letters, bringing kindness with you into the most mundane activities, that connection with the importance of how we behave and intentional ways that we live our life, and also the connection with death and other obtuse, is that the right word? large or continuously significant things. I often feel really sort of sad um, by a loss of connection that I sometimes don't even feel. It's kind of like the the air we breathe here in the West, we have grown up in these uh, with values of autonomy and individualism that um, other cultures haven't. And we just, I don't always uh, remember to recognize the truth in other cultures. I don't always remember to seek the truth in other ways. 
um, and sometimes forget that I am connected to so much more than just my daily existence. So Sila, Sila shows up in a few different places. It's important, it's clearly important. Um, Sila shows up in the paramis, the ten paramis, the perfections of the heart that Steve spoke about last night. And also in the three pillars that Steve spoke about earlier today. Um, the three pillars of practice, dana, generosity, sila, ethical conduct, and bhavana, or mental development. And it can be, I notice this in my mind, I'm just speaking to you about what I've noticed in my mind, not trying to be preachy. <laughs> see this in my mind that I can sometimes prioritize the mental training and forget that there are three pillars, sweetie. <laughs> and the Buddha didn't prioritize one over the other. Actually, the Buddha said that these three pillars are the foundations of practice. So just a reminder that Dana and Sila point to the um, our relationship to each other, like very clearly for me. Generosity, this acts of kindness that we offer each other, um, service, time, things, whatever, intentions, and sila, the, the way we uh, behave, right? the way we learn to let go of thoughts and impulses that are dangerous or violent. And we've probably seen this train of our mind um, on retreat, these just be sitting here in a seemingly peaceful way and a really aggressive thought comes into mind, a, a jealous thought, an angry thought, a hateful thought. And so Sila points us to the practice of letting that go and not acting it out. Ajahn Suchito wrote a great book called Paramis. Um, it's available online, it's free, and I appreciate the way he writes and teaches. It feels full body to me, like a, heart, a heartfelt expression. And he, one of the things, he told a story in, um, in the book about a mosquito and working with talking about that uh, Sila is committing to non-abuse. It's like committing to non-abuse. And so talking about, this, sharing the story about a mosquito buzzing and asking himself, do you have to die so that I can live? That's a good question to hold. Sometimes I hold that in my mind and ask myself like, what it really means, what it means to, like in the way I talk, and in the simple ways that I engage with my partner. And I can see that violence, it feels violent. That the impulse, like when I'm having a conversation and uh, anger is arising and there's no space and I continue to have the conversation, just the force of it feels like a damage, something that I'm damaging instead of nurturing, like both in my own heart and it has such potential to do damage to her, whoever I'm talking to.
And we can practice purifying our actions by taking the precepts. We do that here on retreat. But we can also take them into our home life and kind of try to understand what it means to practice non-harming by not stealing, not taking life, not speaking untruths, not acting out in ways that, sexual ways that are abusive, harmful, and not indulging in intoxicants. And just the, like, what if we all took one of those precepts and just worked on it, practiced with it, tried to understand it, would that make a difference? I think it would make a difference. If everybody in this room did that, what happened if everybody in the city just did it, like, took up a training of one of the precepts once a week or once a month, that would make a difference to how we are with each other. It would have an impact. And these precepts aren't specific to Buddhism. They're simple in general and probably show up in a lot of different spiritual traditions and non-spiritual traditions just as good ways of behaving as human beings. And one thing that's good to remember about Sila is that the wisdom comes along with Sila. So by practicing, by practicing some restraint, not acting out the impulses that are in our minds, we are actually, we can know that wisdom is there. Wisdom is kind of guiding. Wisdom is guiding, guiding the way. There's a distinction in the teachings of Sila between convention and intention. So a conventional way to practice Sila is to like understand cultural norms or family norms um, and just start there, like practicing the rules of the house or establishing some guidelines for how you want to be and how you want people to behave in your communities and your in our homes and things like that. And then intention is kind of a step beyond that. It's like an internalization of those conventional norms so that there's an ethical basis and those intentions kind of arise from a, a deeper place, is my understanding. So there's like an attitude of mind. It points to an attitude of mind like an ethical, deep sense of caring about my heart and yours when we're practicing intention as part of our training with Sila. It is also said that Sila trains the mind to receive the teachings. So Sila, Dana, and renunciation, these practices of letting go. And that really makes a lot of sense to me. It's like if I came, if I just had a lot of bad behavior all the time and then I dropped into a retreat, purified the mind a little bit and that went back to my bad behavior, that doesn't make sense, right? It wouldn't make sense. But once 
we receive the teachings and they land in our heart, then it makes sense to act from a different place. And it's easy to see that, you know, on noticing on retreat here, how um, a little bit of effort yields some benefit. There's some effort that we put forth and supportive mindfulness, living a mindful life. And as that mindfulness becomes more continuous, then over time wisdom is developed. And with wisdom, our habits sort of naturally, this is what I've noticed in my life, they naturally change. So I take Sayadaw's teaching about right, right effort, not to mean that I don't have to try, but to mean that it really makes sense if there's a natural way of practicing, if there's a right application of effort, then as wisdom develops, the things that I used to do that were not in line with the teachings just kind of don't make sense anymore and I don't want to do them. Right? I might restrain from it's easier to want to be careful about my speech because I understand. I understand better the impact of harmful speech. So I want to talk a little bit too about how sila has been a motivation for anti-oppression work in my life. Is this like the illustration that was easiest to notice in my mind when I thought about what I might say about sila? This has been a big part of how I've lived in my adult life. You can start off just by saying that the mind doesn't change without effort. Our lives don't change without effort. The world doesn't change without effort. So as my um, my intention to be a decent human being in relationship to other human beings grows with the understanding and practice of sila, I naturally want to act on it. It becomes an extension of my practice to want to do something about it, to want to share to want to contribute to some sort of good force in the world. It also feels like a new kind of energy that I want to take care of, like the birth of something, uh, the birth of something beautiful. Like, oh yeah, I really do care. And I want this action to be a result of that caring heart, this connection that I have with myself, and this ability to care about others. And it makes it more possible to take risks, like the risk of offering my practice with all of you. It doesn't make it easy, but there's a lot of faith that it's coming from a good place, that place of caring. And it's easy to notice the generosity in my efforts, and that feels really good. Like Steve said last night, it's a good investment to do something nice be generous, and then reflect on it as many times as I want to, to have some balance in the mind, when, especially when things get hard. And Sila has um, really encouraged a fearless kind of seeking the truth. This teaching of um, the difference between convention and intention has been important to me. 
Um, and I tend to see, I, I like to look at convention in terms of like culture and recognize that the culture we're swimming in in the West uh, has an impact and often is, um, yeah, culture can be, can serve to support uh, the truth or it can obscure the truth. And so there's a concept of whiteness. That's There's a book called The White Racial Frame, and um, it's listed on the anti-oppression resources out in the lobby. But there's a like description of what, what whiteness means, and it um, points to the historic, there's historical origins and since the beginning of um, this country's existence, and how whiteness has been, um, is based on forced labor and stolen land and genocide and hatred, all these values that I don't want in my life. And so this intention to see clearly this cultural uh, force that often guides how our consumerism and uh, my choices uh, is not easy. And it is an expression of delusion it's hard to penetrate. And even just in saying that, like describing what whiteness is, you might be thinking, I don't know if she's right about that, right? Or I think she's really wrong about that, or I have no idea what she's talking about. And this is exactly what delusion is. It's confusing. We don't see clearly. And so we just kind of like, I've noticed this, how I can, I've had a lot of privilege in my life as a white person, and I just, act without noticing how uh, the benefits of privilege, really. And more importantly, it points to the loss of connection, this separation that um, I have to do things on my own, I have to stand my own two feet, um, don't rely on other people, and be afraid of that what is not understood well. So in trying to decide on like right action, what does right action mean in my commitment to doing anti-oppression work and how does that relate to purifying my actions and not reacting to uh, defilements of mind, the impulses and thoughts that arise in my mind. I think Lewis again pointed to an understanding, and Jayanti did too, about um, what family is. And sometimes I feel like, as a queer person, my understanding of family is different. We, often in my community, will say chosen family, which just means me and all my people. <laughs> all the people I chose choose to be in my inner circle. And what does it mean to actually broaden that uh, definition to include all of you and all of the people outside of here and all of the people in Minneapolis and all the people around the world. 
what about if my definition of family were to be that broad? How would I respond differently? How do I respond differently? So I'll just play with this in my head when I think about like some injustice in the world that I want to, um, that I feel moved to respond to. Like, should I go to that protest or not? No, I'm a little bit afraid. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I trust the people that are there. I don't know if I fully understand the issues. Well, then I, I sometimes give myself this scenario, like, sweetie, what would you do if this were your child who was involved in some drama? What would you do? And then it's really clear. Like, oh, I would talk to my child. I would talk to my child's friends. I might talk to their parents. I'd investigate. I'd try to get some deeper understanding. I'd try to understand all sides and have a broader perspective. And so what about if I would go to this action or take this step that I'm scared to take because I just want to learn? What if I can be there just to learn? It's like reminding me that I don't have to solve the world's problems. I just have to um, do what I say I'm about. I want to wake up completely. And if, is this a means to wake up? To wake up to the delusion of separation? To wake up to the delusion that um, we all act in moral and ethical ways all the time? that bad things don't happen to brown people, people of color in this country. So some of the things that have supported me in this investigation is to simply practice not acting out, but also to engage in places where I'm, I feel different so that I can learn, so I can show up, put myself in a position to learn. Learn about the earth, the, learn what other ways of knowing are available to me, learn what other cultures, how people talk and act and behave and what the norms are so that I don't have to be so afraid of what I don't know. I try to pay attention specifically to what people of color are saying about a particular issue, um, even though I notice my mind sort of like, I'm not sure, I don't know, that's not my experience, but that's right, that's what happens when the mind is confused, like understands this conventional sense of things, and then sometimes rejects or denies other expressions. But the more comfortable I get, uh, the more I'm in situations like that, the more comfortable I get receiving different expressions. For a long time I had a commitment to not reading anything written by uh, European, Western European people. I would only read uh, material, books, literature written by people of color because I just felt this like need to balance this overwhelming conditioning that is whiteness in this country. So again, my favorite, Nikki Giovanni in younger years. 
She wrote this book. She really appreciates, likes to talk about African American spirituals. I'm not going to read from the book, but I'm going to just close with um, her dedication, a very simple dedication in the beginning of her book, just to see if we can really connect across across history to the truth of difference, difference in our life experience, but our unity, the way we can unify around wanting happiness and freedom and similar values in our lives. This dedication is simply to the bravery of those African women who in 1619 stood on the gangplank of a Dutch man-of-war, held hands, and courageously walked into the new world. It's truth. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.